Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December 16th, 2016, and this is episode 1917 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. That means it is time for the Listener Council Show. The Monster Show of the Week. What we got for you today? Well, <clears throat> here we go. The ins and outs on military jeeps from Tim Grouch at Old Grouch Military Surplus. Lacto-fermentation with honey. I had never even heard of this. Erica Strauss will tell us all about it. Getting rid of moss on your roof. Uh, there's old structures where they actually build moss roofs, but if you have a modern structure, you don't want moss growing on it. You want to get rid of it without doing some kind of horrible chemical thing. Nick Ferguson will weigh in on that. What about keeping your homeschooling going when techno technology fails, when you can't just fire up the computer? Micah Sulaprise will be giving us info on that. Michael Jordan on winterizing your beehives. And John Pugliano answering the question, what tricks does the Fed Reserve have to fight the next recession? Because we know sooner or later there'll be one. And uh, I'll back clean up with another question on the Fed I thought paired well with John's is, what the hell is the federal funds rate in layman's terms? What does it mean? It, they went up a quarter point. The world is going to something. What's it going to do? What does it mean? Why do I give a shit as a common person what the freaking federal funds rate is? And the short answer is, while it's the rate that it is, you probably don't need to worry about it very much. Anyway. Before we uh, get into all that, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Guys, right now, do you know I have personally about a hundred trees, vines, and bushes from Bobwell's Nursery on my property? Over time, they will produce season after season of edible products. They look great, too. Bobwell's is always my first choice when buying new trees, vines, and shrubs for my permaculture work. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com today. For years now, I've been telling you to eat what you store and store what you eat. But storing food is only half of food security. The other half is knowing what to do with it. Chef Keith Snow of Harvest Eating will teach you to store food and how to use that stored food in amazing, delicious recipes in his new online course called Food Storage Feast. It features dozens of exclusive recipe videos, all built around long-term storage food that will help you integrate food security into your everyday life. Go to harvesteating.com forward slash FSF to get a free sneak preview of the Food Storage Feast, especially for TSP listeners. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is Sustainable Business Planning. They provide workshops in accounting and business planning to help farm entrepreneurs get started in business. You can check them out at the TSP Business Directory. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year, 1917. And the episode, well, 1917. We have the following for you today. The German plot to invade the USA. We have the October Revolution begins in February, and we have the East St. Louis Massacre. We also have notable births. John Fitzgerald Kennedy is born this year in 1917, will become President of the United States, and assassinated by, well, supposedly, Lee Harvey on Law. Uh, Carl Karcher, founder of Carl's Jr.'s restaurant chain. He starts by hawking his car to buy a hot dog stand. Arthur C. Clarke, sci-fi author who states... Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And Jane Wyman, actress of the first wife of President Reagan. Rumors that she is really Jane Wyatt are false. I've never seen them together. Hmm. In other news, the 100-inch reflector telescope is installed on Mount Wilson, California. 
Unfortunately, the life in the city of Los Angeles will be a problem later on. Rutherford splits from the atom. It had to happen. He also discovers that proton and names it as such. And the Lions Club is founded. You can't get very far until you start doing something for somebody else. Melvin Jones, founder of the Lions Club. I'm going to read to you, well, the German plot to invade the USA. Seriously, Germany cannot win this war, but they have not lost yet. Great Britain has cut off Germany's food supply, so the German U-boats need to get aggressive against British shipping. But if they do that, the U.S. will come into the war. The Kaiser believes that German-Americans will rise up against President Wood Wilson, but German agents within the USA know that this is a mistaken assumption, badly mistaken. The Kaiser also believes that Mexico will fight for Germany due to the recent U.S. acts of war against Mexico and the threat of Japanese invasion. The yellow peril, as he puts it. He really thinks this honest. A telegram is sent by the German Foreign Secretary Zimmerman to their ambassador in Mexico, informing him of their plans to ask Mexico's help. In exchange, Germany will help Mexico take back Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico. The Mexicans have their hands full with the Civil War right now. They pass. Meanwhile, the Brits are tapping the telegraph lines. They decode Zimmerman's telegram and, through intrigue, pass it on to the USA. It is published, and the public goes wild. A lot of German pubs in the USA suddenly changed their names to the Swiss Gardens, if you know what I mean. It's war. My take by Alex Shrugged. It has been difficult not to shout vulgar words during these history segments. These guys sound insane, but we are the product of those who survived, those who were less insane. When it became clear that the German Navy was kaput, the admirals, mostly old-time aristocrats, planned to go down in a blaze of glory. The German sailors didn't like that plan. Now you know why so many people have disdain for the aristocracy. Don't get me wrong, the aristocracy has its place. Preferably someplace cool and dry and out of the sun. Um, first of all, the aristocracy is a problem on all sides in, in, in this war. Specifically, when I say that, the French, the British, and the Germans. Not so much the Americans who enter the war this year. By the way, I believe the first combat the U.S. troops will experience was sometime in October uh, of, of 1917. So even though we entered the war, I think, in April officially, it wasn't until October that we actually got over there and our first troops got things, uh, got things running. And uh, in the end, there'll be 2 million Americans that will uh, fight in World War One. Uh, 50,000 will lose their lives. Many more will lose limbs and sanity and things like that. But the aristocracy was deeply entrenched in France, Germany, um, and the UK, as, and many other parts of Europe as well, because, well, they still had the remnants of, of royal leadership, you know, Kaiser running Germany, for instance, uh, instead of a president or prime minister or something like that. So if you have a king that, that, that still matters, if you have a, a, a royal-like figure that still matters, then there's a whole court and pomp and stance of people that have, you know, come into that aristocracy from that. And a movie that you might really want to watch to really understand how this shit actually worked uh, was called Paths to Glory or Path to Glory. I think it's Paths to Glory. And I, it, it, I believe it starred Kurt Russell, uh, who we recently just had as one of the first, Ameri first people still alive mentioned in the history segment. It is on YouTube in uh, full, uh, full, full viewability from the beginning to the end. 
And I'll put a link in the show notes for you so you can watch it for free. They have a bunch of commercials blended into it, but it, they're no big deal. I mean, they're the typical YouTube-type commercials. And it's black and white. I believe it was made either in the late 30s or early 40s. And uh, it, it's an honest look at war. It, it really is. I, I actually think in some ways it's a better movie than All Quiet on the Western Front because it shows this problem to a large degree. Um, it's, it's going to be a different world as we cross through the next really three, um, history segments. I'll just say that and leave it at that. With that, we go ahead and, and get into, uh, the main topic of today's show. And our, uh, first question today is for, who is it for? I don't remember now. Oh, it is for Tim Glantz. Uh, my buddy David is interested in a project of finding and, uh, and, and rebuilding U.S. military jeeps. And I remember Tim Glantz talking about this and saying there's actually a pretty good opportunity to do that still available. So I sent the question over to Tim. Tim, give us all we need to know about those old MASH-style military jeeps. They're kind of fun to drive, if nothing else. Hey, Jack, and everybody out there listening to TSP Land. Tim Glantz here with Old Grouch's Military Surplus with an expert panel answer for David on uh, old Jeeps. David asked, can you discuss getting and rehabbing old military Jeeps or their civilian equivalents? Uh, recently, uh, David found two that uh, they can get for little or nothing, but he's worried they may be too far gone to repair. Well, David, let me tell you something first. As an old Jeep fanatic, there's no such thing as a Jeep that's too far gone to save. As long as you've got the will and the time and the money, uh, you can fix everything on them. You can get new bodies, you can get new frames, you can get new axles. There's even a guy putting the flathead motors back into production very soon, so you can get a brand-new flathead motor for it. So uh, they can definitely be a worthwhile project. They're fun to work on. They're easy to work on. Uh, you don't need a whole fancy tool set to work on them uh, like you do a lot of newer stuff. Uh, if you're good mechanically inclined and know a lot about stuff, they're easy to work on. If you're not, it's a perfect time to learn and a perfect thing to learn on because they're easy to work with. And when you get to using them, Uh, if you look at what an old 40s or 50s Willis Jeep brings uh, to the table for use on a homestead or a farm, if you look at something like uh, some of the side-by-side -side UTVs by Kubota or the John Deere Gator, they basically have just reinvented the old 50s Willis Jeep with some more modern components. Same basic size, same weight, uh, but to my mind, the, Will the old Willis Jeep holds several advantages. Number one, they're easier to work on. Some of these newer side-by-sides can be pretty complex, especially when you get into hydrostatic transmissions and stuff like that if they, if they go bad. Number two, uh, you can run them down the road. In most states, you're not taking your side-by-side -side legally down the highway. The old Jeep, you can get a tag and title, and you can work on the farm with it, and then you can just turn right down the road and, and go down to get something to eat or make a run to the hardware store or anything else. And perhaps uh, from an economic standpoint, one of my favorite things, Uh, your old Jeep appreciates as you own it, as long as you don't tear it up. And if you go to fix it, you add even more value. That side-by-side -side is depreciating the moment you buy it. You buy a brand-new side-by-side, you're going to pay more than you'd pay for a restored Jeep. Five years later, it's going to be worth about half as much as it was. That restored Jeep or partially restored Jeep, as long as you haven't abused it, is going to be the same value or higher. So... From that standpoint, the Jeeps are a better buy and a better investment. Now, you can get frustrated on these. You can uh, 
you know, bust your knuckles working on them. You can have a lot of trouble out of stuff if you don't do it right. But uh, as long as you go into it saying, hey, I realize this is a 50-year-old vehicle, but I can bring it up to a good spec, and I'm willing to, you know, have to tinker on it every now and then when I need it to run right, uh, you know, they're great vehicles. I'm about to start a project now where I'm actually going to kind of document building a uh, a homestead Jeep, so to speak, where I take an old Jeep I find and, and go through it piece by piece and kind of build it up to the specs I want the way I'd want it. Uh, if it's me, I'd look for uh, probably a CJ3A uh, or a CJ3B. Uh, I'm big on doing engine swaps in them for a newer engine. One of my favorite swaps is actually to put the 2.3 Ford four-cylinder. That's the four-cylinder that came in Pintos, uh, Ford Rangers, uh, four-cylinder Mustangs, and several other Ford cars because they make a swap kit that lets you do that, and it's uh, it's actually lighter than the original engine with more horsepower, and it'll rev higher. So it gives you a great little package. And parts availability uh, for that little engine is, is, is super easy. Every parts store has about everything you need sitting on the shelf because there are so many of them out there. Whereas you can get these old Jeep parts, but you might have to wait a day or two for them to come in. So you can do a lot with the Jeeps. If you want to send me some pictures to Tim at OldGrouch.com of the ones you found, I can let you know what models they'd be and what the strengths or weaknesses of each model would be. And uh, maybe I'll get together with Jack one day soon, and we'll do a whole show on old Jeeps because I could talk forever about old Jeeps and uh, all the uh, fun things you can do with them. Thanks for the question. I hope that helps. And like I said, email me some pictures, or if you got any more questions on them, uh, don't be afraid to ask. And I can also let you know where to uh, get some good parts for them because there's a lot of them out there. Thanks again. I personally constantly vacillate with the restoration project, and it always comes down to either doing a 1008 or 1009, which are the cut Vs uh, that uh, I actually spent quite a bit of time working on because when I joined the Army, uh, the cut V was being re- actually had been replaced by the Humvee, but not yet in Panama. Panama was like the last place to get their Humvees. Uh, so we had a whole fleet of them. And uh, even though we got the the Hummers really quickly after I got down there, I got a lot of experience with the Cut Vs because they uh, we had to actually make them perfect, uh, at least to our shop's level of maintenance, to turn them in. Even though they were going to like be given to National Guard groups who would immediately beat the piss out of them and things like that, and a a lot of the perfect was uh, spit shine and a turd to use an old military term. But you know, I pretty much worked on every inch of those things, so I know them well. But the Jeep just seems cooler. I mean, in the end, all of the all the the Cut V is is a, a one ton pickup truck from the seventies and eighties. That's what it really is. Um, the Jeeps are are cool. They really are. So maybe someday I'll do it, or maybe I'll do it vicariously through David. Next question is for Erica Strauss on fermenting lacto fermentation. I fermented a lot of honey in my life. A lot of honey. I'm sitting here looking at about eight gallons of it. Clearing nicely in secondaries right now, and uh, some really cool stuff with. Uh, but this is regular fermentation where you know yeast and sugar get together and alcohol comes out at the end of the party. This is lacto fermentation with honey. I've, I've never even heard of this. Erica, please tell us all about it. 
Hey, TSP, Erica here from the Expert Council calling in to answer a question from Brian about a fairly unusual and sophisticated form of fermentation, fermenting foods in honey. Now, Brian's asked me a few specific questions I'm going to get to in a second, but first I want to describe the lacto-fermentation in honey process just as a concept to get everyone on the same page, because this is probably something many of you have not heard of before. So basically, in traditional lacto-fermentation, brine with salt and water excludes oxygen and allows the natural beneficial lactic acid bacteria to grow and colonize, creating this lactic acid and preserving the vegetable naturally. So this is kimchi, this is sauerkraut, this is naturally fermented dill pickles, everything you think of as sort of a lacto-fermentation. Now, fermentation in honey is very simple in concept. You just cover organic fruits or vegetables with pure, undiluted, raw, unheated honey, and the honey itself forms an airtight seal that excludes oxygen from the produce and the natural moisture in the fruit, plus the natural bacteria on the fruit, and the enzymes in the honey create a kind of slow-motion fermentation that ends up a bit sweet and a bit sour, and for people who like this kind of thing, delicious. So in theory, this is easy, but as they say, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice, there is. And in practice, fermenting in honey can be very unpredictable. As a sugar-based product, when honey is diluted, it really wants to ferment into alcohol. It wants to turn into mead. That's just the nature of honey. So if your produce is juicy and the honey dilutes too far, any wild yeast spores on your fruit or in the air will very quickly turn what should be a lactic acid-based ferment into an unpredictable wild yeast ferment. And you know, you're going to get a very different result with that. And the other microbe that thrives in a high sugar environment is mold. So again, with a slight increase in moisture, some of the mold spores that are, you know, going to be right on your fruit most likely can start to create this decay process before uh, the lactic acid bacteria can start their preservative effect. So the bottom line is that unlike a traditional brine environment, which preferentially benefits salt-tolerant lactic acid bacteria, the sugar-based environment of honey really preferentially benefits wild yeast and molds and and other stuff that aren't going to create the effect um, that we really want in a lactic acid ferment. So it's possible, and people do this technique, and some people love the results, but it's a technique that will just never be as reliable as a more traditional brine-based ferment. Now, the first specific question Brian asked me is, is this fermentation in honey a good or a bad idea? And I've already covered some of the practical concerns with the technique, so let me just run down some safety aspects of fermentation in honey, and you know, I'll let you make your own decision on if this is a good or a bad idea. The first thing to know is that this is so far away from sort of standard food preservation techniques like water bath canning or fermenting cabbage for sauerkraut that there are no tested or established official guidelines. So everything I'm about to tell you is just based on my understanding of the underlying science and my own judgment. The second thing to know is honey is known for containing the botulinum spores, which is why we don't feed honey to infants. However, botulism is never going to germinate and grow and create toxin in pure, undiluted honey. Um, Honey itself is a very high acid, high sugar, low moisture product. So you've got an environment 
where those spores are going to stay dormant and they're never going to become harmful. So now the only concern from a safety perspective here is whatever you add to that honey that might disturb the balance of high acid, high sugar, low moisture. We know from canning that if a food product has a pH of 4.6 or below, it's deemed high in acid and safe for boiling water bath canning. So the acid itself is going to prevent any sort of botulism issue. The average pH of honey is 3.9, so it's even more acidic. And even though the pH range of honey can be quite high, that's a pretty safe margin, 3.9 versus 4.6. So I'm personally extremely confident in the safety of doing a honey-based ferment, as long as what you add to the honey is also high acid. And this means fruit, basically. So, for example, fermenting lemons in honey or cranberries or aronia berries or blueberries, I have no personal concern about this type of food preservation from a safety standpoint. I don't see any reasonable situation where botulism could grow and create you know, botulism toxin, um, since we're adding a high acid product to another high acid product. As mentioned, molds and other kinds of decay bacteria might be a problem, but these types of bacteria will create, you know, smell and appearance problems that will let you know that something has gone wrong in your ferment. Um, As with any other ferment, if you're in doubt, throw it out. If it seems like it's funky, if it seems like your, you know, fruit has become slimy and is starting to break down other than what you would expect from a natural fermentation breakdown process, um, you know, you're going to have to chuck it. But again, you're not looking at some sneaky botulism toxin you won't know is there. There'll be other signs that something has gone wrong with the ferment if what you have is decay bacteria kind of taking over the ferment. So that's fermenting high acid, like fruit in honey. Where it gets a little less clear cut for me is fermentation of higher risk, low acid foods like garlic or onion in honey, vegetables essentially. Uh, Particularly with root vegetables like garlic, you're already looking at a high potential botulism spore load. This is true for any root crop. So I'll be honest, I personally wouldn't do this. I wouldn't do a low acid ferment in honey. Um, But that said, I know a lot of people in the fermentation world who do ferment garlic and other low acid items in honey. And these are people I respect and I feel like they have a generally very safe approach to fermentation practices. And their perspective is that the high sugar content and the low moisture content of honey means that even if you add a low acid item like garlic, the final product is safe. Now again, I can't confirm this and I always err on the side of caution when it comes to botulism. And I just haven't seen quite enough proof to to be convinced that for myself and my family, we can be assured that this is a safe technique and it creates a safe final product. So that's the basic idea when it comes to safety. Um, The next question Brian asks is, are the health benefits that people talk about true with regard to fermenting in honey? The quick answer here is no, probably not. I don't know what specific health benefits people are touting on the internet that you're seeing, but any honey ferment is going to result in a sugar-based condiment, pretty much. So it's probably healthier than jam made with white sugar, but uh, let's not overplay things and start suggesting that a sugar-based condiment is somehow you know, kale salad. And now that said, Raw, and especially raw local honey, can have some real benefits to sufferers of seasonal allergies. And this has to do with how adding specific local pollens that can be found in honey, in raw honey, 
adding those to your diet can kind of train your immune system to recognize the pollen and no longer react to it. That can have some benefit if you are a seasonal allergy sufferer. And if that's the case, you're just going to want to make sure you seek out raw local honey, as local to you as possible. And then, of course, fermented foods are healthy in many ways for gut bacteria, etc. I've talked about this a lot on the show. But you can get all these same health benefits eating sauerkraut and adding a little bit of raw honey to your evening tea. So I'm not aware of any like synergistic benefits to lacto-fermentation in honey that you wouldn't also get from just eating more traditional brine ferments and raw honey separately. So the third question I've got from Brian is, how long do you ferment items in honey? Well, every ferment is a bit different, as you guys know, in the length of time you'd ferment because brine strength, temperature, all this stuff, they all play a role. And with honey, everything is even less predictable than with a traditional brine ferment. So the best we can do here is generalize. With a honey-based lacto-ferment, we can say fermentation will take a lot, lot longer than an equivalent brine-based ferment. And the reason for this is undiluted honey is a natural preservative. And if you're introducing fermentables like a low-moisture berry, like cranberries, you're just barely changing that preservative environment. So expect ferments will take a lot more time with honey than with brine. Months, potentially, instead of weeks or days. In general, fruit with a higher moisture content, like citrus, will ferment faster in honey than fruit that's quite dry, like those cranberries I mentioned. But you also have a higher risk of ending up with this kind of weird mead effect. Again, this has to do with the dilution of the honey and how adding moisture to the honey encourages fermentation, but not necessarily the kind of fermentation you want. My friends who do ferment stuff like garlic give time frames like two to four months. I would say give yourself a month to two maybe for firm berries, about half that for citrus, and um, look for traditional signs of fermentation like little bubbles in the jar. Make sure you swirl and burp your jar as you go to release any pent-up uh, CO2 that might be in there. And... Um, you know, just keep an eye on it because, again, this is a very unpredictable process and you're going to have to assess and judge as you go. Now, Brian's next question is what can you ferment? Um, you know, I think the answer to this is a personal comfort and safety level question and then a culinary question more than anything else. And since I've given my opinion on the safety aspect, I would just advise culinarily that you avoid anything that's going to be weird with kind of a sweet, sour honey flavor. Um, I would definitely rule out green veg green beans, asparagus, anything like that. I wouldn't do those anyway because they're low acid, but from a flavor standpoint, I would also rule them out. If you decide you are comfortable with the low acid ferments in this style, um, then carrots, sweet potatoes, beets, garlic, and ginger all have very nice flavor profiles that would pair well with the effects of a honey fermentation. For fruit, which I think is safer, I would look towards firm citrus like lemons and oranges, which I would ferment skin on. I would stay away from really juicy fruit like strawberries or super ripe peaches because they're just pretty unlikely to survive the fermentation process intact. Uh, firmer nectarines, firmer plums, pineapple chunks, I think that would work well, although I'm speculating here because I've never done those particular things. Individual berries with firm skins like blueberries, cranberries, aronia berries, I think would work very well. 
All right, I think I've answered Brian's basic questions on fermenting in honey. Uh, to sum up, I would definitely categorize this as a more advanced technique for people who enjoy experimenting with fermentation and, frankly, can afford to lose the time and money that they might invest in a ferment. Uh, if you don't have your own hives, raw honey isn't cheap, so if you have to buy your honey for this experiment, pouring a few cups over some berries in a jar can be a pretty expensive failure if it doesn't go you know, the way we were hoping. So just go into these kind of experiments with honey fermentation, knowing the safety concerns and the reliability drawbacks. But if you do have an abundance of honey and if you drink alcohol, I'm going to recommend you look in the direction of mead making. Uh, Jack has done several shows where he covers mead making in pretty great detail. And if that's something that interests you, I would definitely take a listen to those shows as well. Okay, Brian, I think I've covered your questions on fermentation in honey. If I missed anything or if anyone in the community has any follow-up questions, just drop me a question in the comments for today's show notes, and I'll pop back and try and answer any questions I get. Guys, we're coming up on the end of 2016, so I just want to thank Jack and everyone in the TSP community for allowing me to be a part of the Expert Council this past year. I suspect this is the last show I'll be on until 2017, so happy holidays and have a safe and happy new year, my friends. Oh, and I guess I will just make a quick plug for my book, The Hands-On Home, which does make a great gift for any budding homesteaders on your list. You can check it out and read reviews on Amazon. Just use Jack's link uh, to get there and search for Hands-On Home. My book will pop right up. Okay, friends, again, happy holidays. Happy New Year if I don't chat with you again in 2016. Thanks so much, and best wishes for a great 2017. I'll talk to you then. Well, I just learned a metric shit ton. I don't know about you. I, I had no clue... Uh, that anybody even did such a thing. So when I got the question, I wasn't even sure, like, is this really a thing? So that also addresses a lot of my concerns that I had about things like, you know, kicking off the alcohol side of things or botulism or any of these other things. I'm, I'm very familiar with lacto-fermentation and uh, kind of making it one of my New Year's resolutions to really up my lacto-fermentation game in uh, 2017, hopefully I may I'll put some videos out in January as we start to do a lot of experiments uh, with it. Uh, I, I just enjoy the flavor, and instead of just making more sauerkraut or more pickles uh, or more escabeche, I want to start doing some other things, some condiments and things like that. So look for that to be coming out next year. Uh, next question we have is for Nick Ferguson on getting moss off of your roof. Nick, take it away. Hey there, TSP listeners and Brian from Oregon, Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com calling in to answer your question on moss. Uh, so moss growing on composite shingles can be a problem with keeping that roof working properly over the long haul, and we definitely don't want to use something toxic to the environment, especially if we're growing food nearby the house. So I'm with you on that, Brian. So let's think about what moss needs to thrive. We want to disadvantage its growth. It needs relatively consistent moisture, cool temperatures generally, shade, and it likes an environment that is acidic. So if you can't prevent its growth by opening up some light to the area, then we need to restrict it some other way. Moisture is going to be almost impossible since you're in Oregon. So the best way, in my opinion is to change the pH. So you can do that by pushing it further towards the acid side with something like vinegar, which is going to be fairly innocuous in your environment. 
um, vinegar will kill plants, so um, you have to be careful with overspray. Um, but rather than use vinegar, I think the easier and probably safer way to deal with this is going to uh, use something like plain old baking soda or washing soda or even maybe hydrated lime. But I would probably just go with baking soda. It's going to be the cheapest, the easiest. It's going to be the least caustic. Um, and you just sprinkle it on the mo- the moist moss and the abrupt pH change and that consistent change over a, a series of days should kill the moss. And then you'll just need to get up there and sweep it off later on. Uh, also, you can use a soap spray to kill the stuff. And this is quite non-toxic, biodegradable. It's liquid castile soap. It's also known as potassium salts of fatty acids or insecticidal soap. And you can buy it on Amazon and some grocery stores. Um, and you can buy it as Dr. Bronner's liquid soap. You want a real liquid castile soap. It's a natural soap made from potassium hydroxide mixed with some kind of lipid, some kind of fat. Dr. Bronner's soap, they use coconut oil and olive oil. You can use any other liquid uh, soap that's made from potassium hydroxide with a fat. This does not mean Dawn dish detergent. So if you're going to use um, this potassium salts of fatty acids, it's got to be that kind of real soap. So if you want to go that route, um, I've read that uh, that soap will help kill the moss. I haven't used it myself, but since it's so safe to use, I say give it a shot. Maybe stack the two functions together. I'd mix up about one ounce per gallon, or or you can just use an, you know one of those hose-in sprayers, and you set it to two tablespoons, which is one ounce per gallon, and wet down the whole roof. Um, maybe you can uh, go up on the roof and sprinkle the baking soda on everything that needs to be covered and then use that hose-end sprayer or a pump-up sprayer or whatever and spray down, just moisten all that uh, baking soda so it starts soaking in. Um, but heck, if you're inventive, you could probably just rig up a way to use a leaf blower to dust the roof from the ground, you know, with like a funnel or something and you just kind of dump it in the tube of the leaf blower and it... It just poofs it all over the roof. Uh, that would probably work. And then use the hose-in sprayer, lightly wet everything down from the ground again. That way you don't even have to get up on the roof. Much safer that way. Much safer than uh, getting up on a roof, especially if you're spraying soapy water. So be careful about that. If you fall off and break your neck, it is your responsibility. Now, I think the best thing is to not keep doing this multiple times a year. So a preventative measure sure would be great, right? And in my internet sleuthing, I found a lot of anecdotal evidence, even photographic evidence, to support the claim that zinc strips or galvanized flashing attached to the roof peak will prevent moss from growing lower on the roof. So if you were to attach to all the roof peaks, all the ridge cap, some galvanized flashing strips, it should rinse zinc off and down onto the shingles and prevent moss from growing on your roof. It's not a ton of zinc, and it works all the time in all weather, all year round. It might mean replacing it every decade or so, maybe five years or so, but 
I think that's way better than getting up on the roof twice a year to scrape moss off or dump pounds and pounds of baking soda on your roof. So to recap, I look into using baking soda as a short-term fix and maybe the soap combined, and then to prevent it from returning, affix some galvanized flashing to your ridge cap and all of your ridge lines, and that that should take care of most of the issues for you. Interesting question. For more homesteading tips, small farm ideas, and sustainable living topics, head over to homegrownliberty.com to check out my weekly articles and the podcast that comes out every Friday. Merry Christmas, everyone. Do good things. Good stuff from Nick, and I would know it's just not a problem we tend to have in Texas where eight months out of the year there's not even any dew on the grass in the morning. So good stuff there. Next, I have a question from Michael and Sue LaPrise of Halo by Sue. And this question is, well, what do you do to make sure that you're able to keep those kiddos learning in a homeschool environment if technology fails? Mike and Sue, take it away. This is Michael and Sue LaPrise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you love to live for the expert counsel. Hey, Jack. We're on the road far from our homestead on an adventure, but uh, thanks to technology, we can still uh, answer questions. But this question is about what if technology is not available? This question comes from Melissa. Hello, fellow homeschoolers. I would like to know your thoughts on resources to have on hand in the event of an SHTF situation to be able to maintain a teachable environment. We love all the access that we have to information at our fingertips, via the Internet, YouTube, smartphones, etc. It has recently become a goal of mine to reverse my previous decision to just have everything electronic format to save space in the home and start storing up valuable information in hard copy format should electricity or the Internet become unavailable. I think that's a great question, and we've already done that. So that's one of the things we have. We've had hard copies of all the, the materials that we use, apart from the Internet, Anyway, Sue is the expert on curricula, and I'm going to turn this all over to Sue to discuss curricula in, in that format. So if you're going to cover all the bases, we've been homeschooling for almost 30 years, and we have a ton of curriculum, and we also have lots of books, about 3,000 books, because when you homeschool, people think you want more books. And I always say yes, and I take them and I give them away if I don't need them or use them. So in covering all your bases, you're going to probably want to leave out things like um, Greek and Latin and, uh, let's say, art history and gender studies. Those might not be on the top of your survival homeschooling if I have to teach my children. We'll stick with the history, English, math, and science. So the easiest one to get prepared for, whether you've got no children yet or little children, you haven't started building your homeschool library would be to get history textbooks. Um, you have a world his- history textbook and an American history textbook. And if you got one of each of those, you could make timelines, buy maps and puzzles, and draw a lot of things as you went if you didn't have the technology to learn more. it's They're super cheap or even free, often at half-price books or at the library. Then for English, you're going to have to teach somebody how to read. So... A super easy book is Teach Your Kid to Read in 100 Easy Lessons. And that's a great, simple phonics tool. Obviously, if your kid has other reading issues and you already know that, you might want some more information on that. And But there's a lot of different resources like that, real simple phonics stuff. And um, you can get a college remedial text for English composition 
Remember that college remedial stuff starts at fifth or sixth grade. So whatever you don't already know, it's a pretty good starting point at fifth or sixth grade when kids really start learning English and grammar and understanding it at that level. So <clears throat> then if you want to add to that and you want to do like stacking that function and you're going to add like a real homeschool curriculum, Institute for Excellence in Writing has a $39 teacher's guide called Teaching Writing Structure and Style. It doesn't come with the DVDs. That's extra, but you might not need those. So that's a good resource for English and writing. Um, and then next time there's a back-to-school thing, I just want to say you're going to want to buy some paper and pencils. And we stock up because the $0.19 cent notebook ad in August is a $2 notebook in September. So buy some of those things and just have them on hand. Then, um, again, math is a remedial college thing starting at 5th or 6th grade. So getting a math mathematics book which is different than algebra. It's just basic math, which they do teach at college. And then getting an algebra book, a college algebra book, that should probably be, cover about all the math that you um, would need. But you're going to want to make sure you get the teacher's guide, the teacher's edition, because all the answers are in there. And if you're like me and you're not really good at math, you're going to have to be learning with your kids if you haven't done this for a while. And you're going to want to know the answers to everything. And that way you don't need two textbooks. You just need the one. So science is really hard because it's like it's so much information. How do you store the Google universe and your home in a bunch of books? You just can't do that. So you might want to start with the things you really love that you would like to teach your kid. And then something simple like chemistry, biology, zoology, those kinds of things. And um, whatever comes your way. So just start keeping your eyes open for free stuff. Maybe you have a sibling who's done with college and they've got all these textbooks and you're like, hey, let me look through those. And you pull out a few of the ones you think, these will be really good. But you've got to keep in mind, what are you going to do with these? Where are you going to put them? Where are you going to store them? How are you going to organize them so that you're not duplicating but you're getting yourself a broad spectrum of basic information for you and your kids. And so there's a lot of really cool library organization tools online. And um, you can just Google and find the kind you like and what you like. And you might be the kind of person that likes totes or bookshelves or bins. And you just figure that out. So as people are getting rid of books, if you're the kind of person that can take things in and then get rid of the ones you don't want. You take them in and you look through them. But um, one thing um, that I think is really important is having a lot of literature books. So our literature, we have a lot of classic literature and there's a bunch of lists online of different classic literature that you can get and have on hand. Um, best authors, there's all kinds of lists like that. Uh, Caldecott Book Award winners, those are my favorite series, Dr. Seuss, things like that. If you're planning on having kids or have some younger kids, you're going to want your own little library and, you know, Christmas presents from Grandma. And one of the really cool, neat things, I try not to buy books anymore because I have so many, but the permaculture world has started writing children's books like Farmer Phil and Matt Powers has... Um, 
a children's book that is painted with food, with paint from food, and it's really lovely. And um, just there's a lot of fun things that you can do to get ready, whether you have kids or not, that might be simple. Maybe you are in college and you're planning ahead. Don't get rid of all those books. So there you have it. This has been Michael and Sue LaPreeze with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live for the expert counsel. Here we are deep in the heart of Texas on an adventure we'll talk to you about sometime in the near future. Anyway, Jack, I uh, hope that answers the question. Uh, one last reminder is, again, it's the teacher's edition of those college textbooks that you want. You want the professor's edition that has answers for you. It'll have the full uh, student text, but also have the teacher's answers. Back to you, Jack. Great advice, as always, from Mike and Sue. Uh, next up, we have a question for Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer, on winterizing your bees. Well, this is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company here in Cheyenne, Wyoming, taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and mead making. I had a few questions, and I know it's a little later in the year than, than most people wanted, but it's about winterizing your beehives. Uh, preparing winterizing your beehives can be a daunting task, even for us experienced beekeepers. I know bees have survived for about 100 million years, of ice ages, geological climates, tall mountains, human in Denver. Um, I mean, the largest loss of bees is over the winter months. The goal is to lose only one hive out of 10. I mean, that's 10%. Uh, there have been reports of many beekeepers losing up to 50 to 75% after the winter months. And this is destroying 100 million years of evolution that the bees have built up. We're going to jump right in and help you solve some problems that beekeepers are faced when it comes to winterizing the bees. If you're working with Langstroth or Weary hives, you want to remove any surplus boxes that could possibly become dead space for cold air. This robs valuable heat for the clustering bees during the winter months. Uh, most beekeepers have already removed the honey boxes during the first week of, and month of August, and it gives about 30 days for the bees to fill up any honey storage before the long winter months. You should shoot to complete your winterization prep by mid-October and just before November. Also, if you're using screen bottom boards, close the ventilation inserts. Uh, you'll need to trap the heat inside the hive. We've been working with other beekeepers around the world on heated boxes to aid the bees in keeping temperatures inside the hive at the rate so the bees can eat and not be so active that they eat all their honey storage but they'll be warm enough that they'll be able to eat and not starve out over the later months of winter. Bees expend an incredible amount of energy over the course of the winter to maintain the constant 90-degree temperature inside their clusters. Help them to conserve as much heat energy as possible is crucial. So there are a couple different ways of putting heating boxes together. Uh, we use the easy-bake oven method. I've seen some people use uh, inner feeders with... Uh, uh, fish tank heaters in the water, uh, keeping it warm inside the hive. I've seen people putting thermal blankets on the inside or even wrapping them on the outside. So anything to help the bees uh, over the winter months is good. Uh, some of the normal behavior for bees will start in the middle of August. That's drone culling. Uh, drones are, cr are created in early summer months and are raised from unfertilized eggs. They're the carriers of the important genetic material that is vital for the diversification and resilient, uh, resiliency 
of the future colonies to be resilient. Um, in the fall, you will see drones become shoved out or dragged out of the hive and left for dead. This is a natural process of the hive cycle. The drones will not help the colony make it over the winter. They only eat up food storage supplies, they drain resources of the hive, and therefore will not be tolerated within the hive. So do not help the drones back in the hive, and feel free to let them fall to the ground. This helps other habitats around, like birds and small insects that will eat them. Now that we're helping the bees in the size of the hive and working the space the bees, we started to see the diminution with the sun. This is the decrease of pollen, nectar, and this factors in the size of brood, and we hope to see a decrease in size. The queen will decrease, decrease the quality of eggs that she will be laying. This will give away more room for food storage. So we're looking for brood. We're looking for small brood patterns or none. That we're hoping that this will hatch the next month, leaving no brood over the winter. Dead brood at the end of the winter is the start of spring. If you have any dead brood at this time, it makes foul brood. And foul brood is the fungal decay in a hive killing it. And many hives have to be burned because of this. So we don't want any brood because if it doesn't hatch, it takes a lot for the bees to keep it warm. And if they're not keeping it warm, they die, it rots, it decays. We get foul brood. <clears throat> the next step, we looked at what diseases there are in the hive and treat them over the winter before it sets in. Uh, we would like to use oleic acid to burst for mites. Uh, when we feed, we make a good feed mix for nosema and dysentery treatment that are needed for when they come into the spring. Uh, remove mite boards, high beetle traps, Check for odd smells, such as American foul brood or European foul brood. Uh, one of the best uh, books, I think, to kind of mitigate and to kind of see what you're looking for in this type of inspection is uh, the Colorado Beekeeper's book from uh, the Colorado State University out of Colorado, uh, Fort Collins. Uh, they have a great uh, book on how to look for pests and how to mitigate and to control them. And that's what you're kind of looking for is uh, how to control mites, foul brood, chalk brood, wax moth, beetles, hell, even bears. So it has some great resources if you're looking to get into it. Is, is look for the Colorado State Beekeepers uh, book on pest management and control. Um, so look for problems, deal with them, and, and get them under control before it gets too cold to combat them. And that way you're not coming out into the springtime with pests. Uh, you'll need to start to see stronger and more, more aggressive bees that the entrance ways that you're going to see a lot more little bees trying to keep pests out. And not only they're kicking out drones, but there's other bees that are bobbing into the neighbor's community. Uh, bee populations are very, very high in the hive, and without pollen and nectar forage, the bees will loot other weaker hives. Uh, many hives have to be closed off. The entrance way, uh, you know, you, you'll see wax or propolis being built. In some areas, it's good to just put in uh, your interest reducers in the bottom. And some of us, you know, we leave interest reducers in year-round and do different things because I've never seen a large entranceway in a tree or any inhabitants that the bees have that they like to control the entranceway. So right now is a good time to close that off. And that way the guard bees have a greater favor on checking all the other bees and making sure predators like wasps, hornets, do not get into the hive. This is a, a good good way to, to check is make sure you have like about three inches space. That's about the largest anybody should have one at the bottom. Some people go right into upper entrance ways or different locations. So 
you know, by drilling a half-inch hole in the box four inches from the top of each box and drill that in there. That gives uh, airflow, allows them to control that a little bit. And when you get close to winter, you can put corks in it. So this allows you to, the bees to control their inhabitant and helps the, the hive stay warmer with, with the lower airflow. But you do want to have airflow go through there, right? That's one way that they're going to mitigate some of the moisture traps that are going in. So one is uh, the warmth of the hive. And the other is the food supply, right? So once we've mitigated the pests out, downsized it to keep them warm, we want to make sure that they have uh, a good food supply. A typical beehive will need 50 to 90 pounds of feed to keep them over the winter months. Now, this does have to do with location. I mean, if you're down in Texas, you know, you you need more food than you do warmth. If you come up where where my area is, man, you're going to need, I got almost six months of Darth. So we feed constantly until honey flow starts after Mother's Day, and then stop, and then start feeding again around just beginning October with liquid feed. So, if if you have about five months of Darth with no nectar flow, you know Darth is anywhere we have weeks, months, even years. You know, it's times of the day. You know, you need to kind of check to see about feed, and that's the most important. Uh, so weighing the hives, I think, is pretty important. Your beehive with two deep brood box should weigh about an average of 130 pounds. About 80 to 150 is typical. Uh, this is a good way of hive. Um, will you need to feed them? Man, I, I feed my bees over the winter. I like them to come out into the springtime with feed still in their hive. Uh, so I feed mine. Uh, I made an investment. I have a lot of beehives. I don't. I don't want to lose them. And so the object's to keep the, the temperatures in the hive around 45 degrees so the cluster can stay at 90 and to make sure that they have food the whole time. So, you know, you should look into fondants, grease patties, uh, some liquid feeds, and try to find some liquid feeds like Gunther Hawks, uh, Biodynamics, Bikenard Farms recipe for BT uh, that has chamomile thyme in it for recognitive memory and stuff for the bees. But, you know, liquid feed in October to the beginning of November and then fondant November, December, January, and February and try to then get liquid feed back into into March and April. Uh, that's usually in my area. If you're down in Texas or somewhere, you're probably only going to be looking about December to February. I don't think your temperature is going to drop much more than 30 degrees. So that's something to think about. Um, you should probably look at installing quilting boxes. Quilting boxes are made to keep the moisture out of the hive. The bees will work hard uh, to build up the humidity in the hive. In the winter, it'll freeze them, making the bees cold and freeze to death. Making a quilting box is a good way to keep the bees warm and a way to uh, try to mitigate the temperatures in the hive and the moisture. Um, I think if you get those pretty much going and then wrap your beehives with cardboard and then some good uh, roofing felt, uh, we have a system where we wrap cardboard when roofing felt do two layers of cardboard. The cardboard has corrugation in it, so it makes an air pocket. And then the sun hits the roofing felt that blocks the wind, keeps the moisture out, wearing up those air pockets and making a warm section. So I think that's always good. And then just figure out about feeding. So look for drone culling. Limit the space in the beehive. Make sure you have pest control and management under control. Make sure the bees have lots of feed. And then make sure you have a quilting box or something to absorb moisture. 
and then wrap the beehives for over the winter. And I think this will help you out tremendously on your beekeeping skills. <clears throat> the object is to come out into the springtime uh, where the bees still had honey in the box. That way, you know, you didn't have to risk about them starving because Ides of March in some areas or you might get a, a frost between here and Mother's Day and, and they're not going to be able to eat. So I try to make sure they have feed all the way until spring and then I let them go to work and unwinterize them at that time. Uh, I think I think this is some good strategies. Uh, I do offer some courses. Um, Perma Ethos is a learning center. It has just videotaped this, and it'll be coming out on how to winterize your hives and make fondants and bee feeds. And you'll get to see us how we do this and how our quilting box is made with a feeder tube in it. So that way you can feed and mitigate feed over the winter months. Hey, I just want to let you know that uh, you should always buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect buy it from a cottage industry and just like we do here spend the time to help your fellow man because one day you're going to need that help too uh and with that another great answer by michael jordan i'm learning more and more about bees uh have you know having my bees here on my property winterization here is pretty simple because our winters just aren't that severe our bees uh, will fly at times of the year when it warms up that bees in the rest of the country haven't even thought about it yet. Uh, we did just uh, feed the bees some candy in the roofs of their hives, so that's actually a, a winter thing for us down here because uh, it helps them deal with humidity. Uh, but Michael is the man. Next, I have a question for John Pugliano. Um, sometimes you look at what the Fed's done with quantitative easing and dropping interest rates and everything. Do they have anything left in their bag of tricks uh, if the next recession comes? John, take it away and give us an answer to that. Hello, TSP listeners. Today we have a question from Dan in Minnesota. Dan is wondering what tricks the Federal Reserve has up their sleeve uh, to help fight and get us through the next recession. Dan also mentions at the beginning of his question that he was surprised that quantitative easing worked so well in getting us through the last recession. Well, Dan, as far as you're being surprised, I'm going to answer that in two contradictory ways. First off, I'm going to say, well, you know, you shouldn't have been surprised because look at how much money they threw at the problem. And I'm just going to use some rough numbers here. But in general, the quantitative easing part added about $4 trillion to the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. And the only way they carry assets on their books is if they print up money. They just create money out of thin air. And then with that money, they go out and buy assets. In the case of quantitative easing, they purchased not only government debt, so they went out and bought government treasury bills. And in addition to doing that, they also bought mortgage-backed securities. And to give you just a scale of how big $4 trillion is or, or what that would actually buy, more or less, that's the entire value of all the, the stocks that are in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So the top 30 industrial stocks in America, that's everything from Nike to Walmart to ExxonMobil, Chevron, uh, Johnson & Johnson. I mean, the list goes on, right? All the 30 biggest companies that comprise the Dow Jones Industrial Average, more or less, they have a market capitalization of about $4 trillion. So that alone shouldn't surprise us that it helped stabilize the crisis that we were going through. But if that wasn't enough, we also had deficit spending. When you look at all the deficit spending that we've had in the, in the last eight years, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 
10 trillion dollars just to make it an easy number to work with. Uh, and, and we're not going to blame this all on President Obama because government debt is growing at about 9% every year. And again, that's a, it's just a round number, but more or less, that's about how much government spending is growing. And so when you have a growth rate of about 9%, that means that the debt doubles every eight years, right? Non-coincidentally, you know, our presidents have four-year terms. A lot of them are in office for two terms. So over the span of a two-term president, whether it's Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton or George Bush or Barack Obama, at a 9% expansion rate, that debt is going to double over the period of their two terms in office. And so George Bush took the debt from, you know, approximately $4 trillion up to about $9 trillion when he left. And then when Obama got in, you know, he came in with about $9 trillion. He's leaving him with about $20 trillion. So it just doubles because that's the rate of growth of government. Okay, I'm, I'm digressing here, but let's get back on track. So when you look at the fact that government spending is growing at, at you know, almost double digits and that that added about $10 trillion into spending over these last eight years, and you put that on top of approximately $4 trillion that the Federal Reserve created out of thin air, and no matter how you look at it, that's a $14 trillion figure. Now, how much money is $14 trillion? Well, $14 trillion is more money than any country's GDP other than the United States. So the United States gross domestic product, that's all the products and services that we manufacture here in the U.S., that comes out to, eh, you know, $18, $19 trillion, somewhere in that range. The next closest person, our next closest country is China. They have a GDP of about 10 or $11 trillion. And then after that, it falls off really quick. You've got, you got Japan at about four or five trillion, Germany at around four trillion. Countries like, um, the United Kingdom, France, India, uh, they're all weighing in at about two trillion, two and a half trillion. So over these past eight years to get out of this recession that we've been in, when you look at all the deficit spending and the expansion of the Federal Reserve balance sheet, you know, you're looking at a number that's greater than the entire products and services created in the country of China. It is, in fact, almost as large as our own economy. So that in and of itself can show us the power of the printing press and how the Federal Reserve and the government can manipulate the economy to get us out of a recession. Dan, to also kind of play devil advocate with your question, you know, I could also make the argument, well, did it really work? You know, I'm sort of surprised that if we had all that deficit spending and all that expansion of the Federal Reserve balance sheet, I mean, why didn't it do more? If you look at the economy, it, it hasn't grown at more than 2% over this entire eight-year period when we had all this uh, printing of money. You would think that if you spent 10 or 14 trillion dollars, we'd have had even more economic expansion than we did. So, yes, I'm not surprised that quantitative easing worked, uh, but in some ways, I'm actually surprised that it didn't work better. Now, as to your original question, Dan, about what are they likely to do next and what kind of tricks do they have up their sleeve? Well, number one, they can always go back to, to more quantitative easing. They can also do something that's been called helicopter money. I don't remember which economist was the first one to come up with uh, the, the term helicopter money. I think it may have gone all the way back to Milton Friedman. But in any case, what helicopter money means is, you know, just the, the last minute emergency spending where to support the economy, they'll just throw money out of a helicopter and let people pick it up. I mean, so it's, it's kind of a, a, an expression to mean 
doing whatever it takes to stimulate the economy by giving money directly to people. And so you're hearing a lot about that, and that is really what Donald Trump is proposing. He's talking about two main things that he's going to do with an immediate impact when he gets into office. And number one is infrastructure spending. Number two is tax cuts. They're also going to probably do this by allowing companies like Apple that have these, you know, $200 billion overseas repatriated. You're going to see that occur whether or not there is a recession because Trump's already talking about doing it. And that would be the same thing with this infrastructure spending. Um, that's going to occur both through government money, you know, building roads and bridges through, through tax dollars, as well as encouraging not only U.S. corporations, but also there's a, a lot of talk right now with having the Chinese come over and do some infrastructure investments in the United States. These could be things like building railroads, you know, uh, allowing the Chinese to come in and build, rebuild some of our ports. Watch for that to occur. The other thing that's kind of paradoxical and, and, and a little bit funny here, but actually some of this helicopter money that Donald Trump is getting ready to spend may actually create the next global financial crisis because as the as the U.S. dollar gets stronger and stronger, much of the global debt is denominated in U.S. dollars. That makes it increasingly harder for these smaller countries to pay back their debt when it's denominated in ever-increasing U.S. dollars. And so when Donald Trump tries to repatriate our money that's overseas, and if he puts up any type of tariffs or trade barriers that encourage more money from leaving the U.S., that will all act to strengthen the U.S. dollar, and that will most likely make the global debt crisis even worse than it is. We can also look out and see what other governments have done in terms of helicopter money. If you look at what Europe has done, and particularly what Japan and China have done, uh, they have their Federal Reserves have not only gone out and purchased government debt or purchased mortgage-backed securities. Those central banks have gone out and actually purchased assets. So they've they've actually gone into the stock market and purchased stocks. So when you look at the Federal Reserve, they've got a lot of tools in their toolbox. They've got a lot of tricks up their sleeve. There's nothing to stop them from coming in and expanding their balance sheet by not only owning these debt assets like the treasuries or like, um, you know, corporate, uh, corporate stock or corporate debt, which I guess I failed to mention, but buying corporate bonds is also something that Europe and, and Japan have done. But the Federal Reserve could actually just come in and buy land. They could come in and uh, say, hey, we, we, you know, we want to build this pipeline that, that goes from uh, Canada to Mexico. We think it's going to help the economy. It's going to help the oil producers in the U.S. And since there's no uh, American companies that are willing to fund it, the Federal Reserve is just going to print the money and use that to, to build the pipeline. They could buy pension programs. Uh, you know, incidentally, I hear, uh, and Jack can comment to this, but I, I hear the Dallas Pension Fund is saying that they're going to go bankrupt in the next, I don't know, seven or eight years. So there's nothing to stop the Federal Reserve from coming in and buying those kind of things with fake printed funny money. So what tricks do they have up their sleeve? Hey, it, it's it's unimaginable. Whatever they want to do, they will either create laws to allow them to do it or they will just do it even if it violates laws that are on the books or if, if it violates the Constitution. That doesn't stop them. And so what will happen at that point? Hey, we'll just have to wait and see. But until then, as always, I appreciate your questions. Don't forget to check out the Wealth Setting Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth. You know, it's an, it's an interesting idea, quantitative easing through buying out pension funds that are failing. Um, 
that would end up with a lot of populist support, and you just had a populist win the presidency. And uh, the the leading Democratic opponent to Hillary Clinton was also a populist. She had a left and a right. Actually, have a centrist populist and a, a leftist populist uh, that were two of the the three top candidates for president, with one one of them winning. And that says something about the direction of the country. So where I'd be all this hysteria about taxpayer bailouts, etc. It is something the Fed could do, and they could do it where it's not really taxpayer money, at least at first, and. You know, it's hard to argue with you know saving the, the the pensions of firefighters or whatever, the heroes that you know work so hard for it, and just because the city squandered it, why should they suffer that type of thing? So, yeah, the uh, Dallas thing. There's a a lot of uh, hubbub here right now because the fund looks like it'll fail in about eight years, and many people are taking their penalties. Uh, of whatever it would be, and taking their money out now so that they can have something rather than risk losing it all later when it would come to maturity. And uh, the city's actually suing the the mayor, suing them to stop them from taking their own money out of their own pension accounts. Uh, that that tells you that that that's one I hadn't really thought of in the bag of tricks. So my follow up question uh, on this I thought would pair nicely with what John had to talk about because it involves the Fed as well. I got an email from uh, from a guy named Mike uh, this week, and it said, you know, there's a lot of stuff on the news uh, about the federal rate hike, right, hike, and it sounds like a big deal, uh, but they're basically moving the the federal funds rate from a quarter point to a half point, so they're moving it, they're hiking at a quarter point. Um, to kind of put things in perspective, the majority of the time in, in, in most adults' lifetime, other than the super ridiculous spikes of, of the 1970s, early 80s, uh, the federal interest rate has ranged somewhere between 2 and 6%. That's a good kind of moving average, and, and more toward the 4%-ish to 6%-ish uh, number for the majority of time. Uh, the the booming 50s and 60s when America was great and we had jobs and one interest rates ran from like two to four percent at that time uh, through the Clinton administration when we had a pretty good economy uh, again you're looking at like four percent money is what you're looking at so just to, so you realize that when you hear a hike to a half a point that's that's not a, a, a big deal so what is the federal interest rate more accurately the federal funds rate so what the Federal Reserve does in setting monetary policy, one of the many things they do is they set this rate. And all this rate is, if I'm Bank of Jack and, and you're Bank of Mike, and Bank of Mike um, needs some money so that you can maintain your 10% reserve on the money you have lent out, and Bank of Jack is kind of flush with reserve. I've got extra reserves right now. I'm, I got a 20% reserve. You're at like 8. I can loan you some money, bank to bank or interbank lending. Then... I'll lend you money. And, and and the federal funds rate of a half point is what you'll pay me on my money. These are generally very short-term loans because as things swap around, the bank of Mike gets more money in through depositors and no longer needs it and repays it. Maybe you're even loaning me money. It's very incestuous. This money bounces all over around the place you know, at this half point or quarter point. And if you can't get funds and if the fed deems you as a worthy bank the fed be, fed being the lender of last resort will will loan you money at that rate thereby enforcing it because somebody's going to get you're you're going to get the money from somewhere so how does this affect you a quarter point it, a lot of times when you see the fed start to raise rates you see the stock market start to come down 
and I'll get to why in a second, but in this case, you saw the stock market take that as a positive sign. Because rates are so low and because they raised at such a small amount. If, if interest rates were, were 4.5% right now, they jacked it to 5, you'd start to see the market kind of come back down. And, and that's why this is done. This is done, this is a throttle on the economy. If an economy gets rolling too fast, you can get hyperinflation, you can get lots of problems, you can get companies building out too fast, and then when the boom ends, the bust is very, very severe. Just like a car. You know, your car can do 120 or 130 miles an hour, but it's probably not good. But you also don't want it doing five. You know, you want to be going down the road at what kind of road you're on, and as the economic factors shift, we have different roads we're driving on, but somewhere in a 35 to 75 mile range. And as the economy, let's say, metaphorically starts creeping up into the like 90 mile an hour range, the Fed will raise the rates, and because it costs more, To get money lended in between institutions, institutions will invest less. And as they do that, it will slow down the economy. If the economy gets going too low, slow, then what the Fed will do is it'll start dropping the rates and giving money away cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, thereby making it less expensive to expand and invest and speeding the economy back up. That's it at the kind of the, the top level. The way it affects you is the, the banks say, well, if I can borrow money from any other bank for a half point, when you put money in my bank as a deposit, I'm going to pay you less. Because I have an almost unlimited supply of money at a half point. So I want your deposits so I don't have to borrow that. You know, I want reserves. I want your money in my bank, but I only want it uh, 0.3%. Right, I don't want it at 0.5 because I can get 0.5 money out out the wazoo. They also say if the, if the money's that cheap for me to get, if I'm going to loan it to you for a mortgage, then I'm going to charge you like three percent because I can make two and a half points over 30 years, and that's pretty good compared to treasuries out there and things like that. So it affects the rates you get on a mortgage, more and a business loan. Those two more than anything else. It also affects credit card rates and things like that, but. Less so, because those are a different class of credit, and therefore they're much more subjective based on who you are as a consumer. There's people that no matter, you're going to pay 18% because you've got Joe Spooty's credit card. They might say MasterCard, but it's a Joe Spooty version of the MasterCard or the Visa, and that's what you get because you're, you're not very credit worthy yet. As you become more credit worthy, you qualify for better credit. So there'll be some effect on that, but not as much. In, in this instance, seeing this again seeing this 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 raise because everybody and their mother knows in the financial markets that a healthy interest rate for this interbank lending rate is about 2 to 4%. And when you have an interest rate of zero, which is what it went to at one point during the recession, what you're what you're doing is you're putting the economy on life support. You're stuffing the banks with money. You're saying, "Please, take this money, invest it, loan it, do something with it." So that you can stimulate the economy. The problem with taking interest rates to like a quarter point or zero or even a half point is you don't have much left. What are you going to do? Like you can do these other tricks John talked about. But from an interest rate standpoint, you've, you've, you've put the throttle to, to, to maximum. 
And the car's going. So you have to. So what do you have to do when your car's got that problem? You got to give it a tune up. You got. Is it bad plugs? Is it bad wires? Is it distributors? Is it a bad fuel filter? Carburetor jacked up. You know, depending on what, what model of car it is. You got to figure out what's wrong with the car. So the Fed is not a mechanic. All they do is run a throttle. Right? All they do is run a throttle and change out the accessories. They put better tires on it once in a while, put a paint job on it. But in the end, the mechanics are the businesses of America. They're the ones that actually get you done. And all the thread can, Fed can do from the standpoint of the rate is throttle up and throttle back, throttle up and throttle back. And then we, the entrepreneurs of the world, take the availability of money and we use that to invest and grow our businesses. So all of the hype over this, this quarter point raise is meaningless. It would be very good to see the, the, the interbank lending rate around 2% again. That would mean that there's a, a great deal of confidence in the economic outlook for the future by the Fed. So what the Fed just said by raising a quarter percent is we're more optimistic than they were, than we were. Now, what, what's funny is I thought I had a, I thought I had a great, uh, a great little sound bite. So Janet Yellen was on the day that they announced this. Uh, I had a TV on in the mornings. I usually make bacon and eggs in the morning or sausage eggs in the morning. That's when I watch TV. I get about 10 minutes a day of the, the news cycle, which is all I need. They cover everything every half hour, you know. Uh, and I get all my uh, my drug commercials at that point, too. I, I find out about Lipitor and uh, I don't know what the hell they call it, the Trustall or some other bullshit name they make up for this stuff uh, with ladies dancing because they don't have psoriasis anymore, some stupid shit. And, uh, I mean, that seems all, all it's on there is uh, 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 the guy telling me to buy gold, um, commercials for, uh, for walk-in bathtubs, commercials for that guy's stupid pillow, and drug commercials. I digress, though. So I watch, you know, I watch this, and Janet Yellen comes on, and I, I'm cooking, so I don't really hear her well. And she says, the long-term outlook of the jobs market seems positive. I thought she said stock market, and it sounded like she said, like, had a, a Freudian twist, and it said stock market called it the drop market. And I'm like, oh, I just, like, paused it and got my bacon off the thing and went, got my, my phone, I'm gonna video this, and so I thought, I mean, this would be hilarious, the drop market, like, are you telling us something subtle? And, and when I listen to it, she's hard to understand, really. She, she talks like, I don't know, like she has food in her mouth or something, but she said jobs market. I'm like, oh, okay, okay. And I'm gonna bet that Miss Yellen will not be the Fed chairman, uh, as soon as her, uh, her position comes up. Uh, for renewal, basically. They're appointed for, I don't remember how long, but uh, the new president will have the option to swap her out, and I, I, I see some sort of uh, 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 a slick-looking uh, Goldman Sachs guy going in there. Uh, the guy for the job would be Ron Paul, because he would, he would immediately start dismantling it and get rid of the Fed. But the other thing that this is for the average person, I don't think people realize this, because of what I said, that The bank will only pay you so much interest as long as they can get money for, you know, a certain amount of money from interbank lending or from the Fed directly with this discount rate. So whatever they pay you is going to be less than that number. So a, a nice healthy interest rate to get from a bank would be something like four points, four percent money. You know, then if you have a, a I don't know, if you have a couple million dollars, you can make $80,000 risk-free. 
well, if you're retired with $2 million in your 401k and you can go into money market for four, four and a half points, you wouldn't dare risk that money. You know, you, you would, you would go very, very conservative and put a lot of cash in there. So, and that affects the economy too, and, I'll t and the stock market especially, I'll tell you about that in a second, but, The reality is that that rate is competing with your deposited dollars. And since it's competing with it, it suppresses the rate you can get. So if we had a, you know, if we had an interest rate, a federal interest rate of about four and a half points, you'd probably get three and a half points on your money. And that starts to actually be something that when your money, even if you're, in a, you're a person that's still actively investing, when you, you take your profits and park your money for a while, at least you're making three, three and a half points. Not a stupid quarter point on your money or a tenth of a, for a while, interest rates at banks, you were getting like 0.01% or some stupid shit. It was, it was almost negative interest on your money. So they're competing with you. Here's why it's bad if the rates go to high. And I'm not talking about super high where you can't afford a mortgage anymore. Let's say mortgages are coming out at 8%. It's high, but it's not 18% like it was during the Carter administration. But what starts to happen is if you start looking at bank accounts, and bank accounts are paying 6% money, 6.5% money, something like that, well, you start saying to yourself, well, geez, you know, that's, that's 6,500 bucks a year on every $100,000 deposited. And your money market rate's usually a little bit better, and tons of people start to pull money out of those mutual funds and put, or at least a portion. They say, well, you know, maybe instead of 10% cash reserves, I need to be holding 25-30. This is a pretty good guaranteed bet. Well, what happens when stocks start getting sold? When they start getting sold and surplus of being bought, their prices come down. So what does the Fed do when that happens? They start lowering the interest rate to force the money and chase it back into the stock market. And that's the primary way it affects you as an individual. It affects your ability to earn interest on your money that's saved in a safe environment, and it affects the cost of money that you borrow. But at a quarter, a half, a full point, it doesn't really mean anything other than an economic outlook indicator. So that raise of a quarter point bump is the Fed saying, we have confidence in the economy. We have more confidence than we did before. They're certainly not trying to slow it down. Because a half a point on that does not slow the economy or deter the economy at all. That's, that's stupid cheap money. Anything under a full point is so cheap that banks just feel that they can do whatever they want with money. And, and so when you start seeing them come up over like a point and a half, that's where they're actually saying we really have confidence in the economy. To start to break the economy, to slow and I don't mean break it like smash it, I mean like put the brakes on, slow it down. You're gonna have to see them push the, you know, the, the money up to like a three percent, three and a half percent money at least. At least. In the past, it's been more like six points starts to really kind of slow that growth down. And again, we won't get into the whole 18% during the 70s, uh, late 70s and early 80s and the Carter Reagan, uh, handoff timeline. Because that is a aberration from everything I just told you and more complicated to explain than I feel like doing on a Friday. And probably more complicated than you feel like listening to on a Friday. So anyway, I hope you learned a lot today. I know I did. I, I love these expert counsel shows because instead of just teaching, I get to learn too. I learn a lot. 
Uh, and if you like learning and you like this show and you want to support us, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the Survival Podcast. Dot com and click on members to learn more right there. And uh, you can sign up. You can use Bitcoin. You can pay with PayPal. That's the most popular way. Or you can use the printout form and you can pay by mail. You can use cash, check, money order. If you ever want to barter something, email me, jaggedsurvivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC barter in the subject line. Tell me what you have in mind. I've bartered for coffee, for instance. I've bartered for soap. I've bartered for lots of things. If I think it's an equivalent value, you know, that's... Barter is good. Uh, barter is better in many ways. Um, with that, the other way you can support us, and this is like stupid easy, when you're going to shop on Amazon, go to tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. When you go to tspaz, you will um, see a link. You click that link, you go to Amazon, you do your Amazon shopping, costs you not a damn dime extra. takes maybe an extra three or four seconds of your time to do it that way. And you do your shopping, and we get credit. You support the show you listen to, and we get to keep doing what we do because it's without your support, it's a hobby, not a business. And that is a very easy way. And every day I have something up for review. Today's review is a book. It's called Perennial Ve Vegetables by Eric Tosenmeyer. Um, it is a great book. Eric is a, a really prolific author. He was the co-author on Edible Forest Gardens, which is like the encyclopedia of perennial production. Uh, he did that with Dave Jackie, and Dave gets credit as the lead author, but when it comes to the research and the, the tables and the, just the, 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 the incredible depth of that book, that's all Eric, man. He, he really is a, a total equal with David in that book, and, and Dave says so. It just, I think because the way it worked out, Dave seems to be the one recognized more for it. He also wrote a book called Paradise Lot. Uh, about transforming a small 10-acre yard, and he followed that up with his book, Perennial Vegetables. And it is a great book. It's got over 100 different perennial plants and how to grow them and what you have to be able to do to grow them. And some of them you, you know, need a greenhouse or an aquatic environment, and a lot of them you can grow in the ground throughout most of the United States. Really great book. You can find it at tspaz.com. Just click the link to see the current listing and all the listings. Or just click through it and go to Amazon, do your shopping, and all is well. You can help support the show. Uh, next up, our song of the day. I played a song by Trans-Siberian Orchestra for you yesterday, and I said it had what I called a build in it. And I uh, didn't know if that was a proper term. Somebody uh, somebody commented, the word you're looking for, Jack, is crescendo. You start out really soft and you build. This is also from Trans-Siberian Orchestra. We're staying with Christmas music. I mean, guys, come on. We're nine days away from Christmas, right? It's that time of the season. And I just love this band. I love what they do by blending classic music and rock music and the light shows and everything. Uh, tell you, I, I was going to take my wife to uh, to Dallas this year to see Trans-Siberian Orchestra. I found a site, you know, like where people sell tickets, uh, like basically legalized scalping. And uh, got some really good tickets, and it was a high price, and I said, I'll buy them, and it was a guy at price was asking for them, and I never got my tickets, I never got charged, and it turned out, it was like kind of like a bid site, but they don't tell you when you've been outbid, dumbasses. So at this point, my wife said, we're just not going, but next year I'm taking my wife to see these guys. Anyway, this is kind of two songs built into one. It's Oh Come All Ye Faithful and Oh Holy Night kind of blended together. And it's done with electric guitars and electric violins and a real orchestra on top of all that. And it's just fantastic. And I'm going to bet that every single one of you have heard this edition of the song before, even if you didn't know what it is. 
If you've ever been to like a place where they do like a really cool, badass light show with Christmas lights to music, this is probably the most popular song that that's done with. And when you hear it, you'll understand why. Hope it brings a little bit of that holiday spirit to you. Again, we're having a hard time sometimes here in the South uh, getting into Christmas spirit because it's not Christmassy. It's going to be Christmassy this weekend. I got a bunch of pipes to protect. It's going to be freaking 17 degrees, I think, Sunday, the Sunday, going into Sunday morning, and it's going to stay below freezing for 24 hours. I know for a lot of you, you're like, oh, freaking Crimea River Jack, wah. This is Texas. This is not supposed to be that way. Where's global warming when you need it? <laughs> the answer is, it's not here. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.